0: 20 through 25. First Peter chapter 2, 20 through 25. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. The only Father, guide us now as we open your word. Thank you that you have given us your word as a light to shine into the darkness. And so the only Father, as a people who are desiring to follow you, just like we sing, help us to know What is the right thing to do at the right moment? Uh, Forgive us for the the, so many ways that we have so twisted the truth into something that it's not. As Peter today reminds us of the example that we've been called to follow, help us to to truly understand that and to uh, correct our lives by your Spirit's help to line up to that. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever... Bought something, and uh, when you get it home and you unwrap it, and all of a sudden you realize that the people who made the picture and did the packaging way outdid themselves because the product that's inside the box does not even meet up with the packaging the way it was, especially if you bought a toy recently of any sort. Um, lately, my son had bought this toy that, it, according to the package, looked phenomenal. And by the time we opened it up, we realized it was not even close to what the marketing expert had given. There's even an expression we talk about, we say let the buyer beware, right? So when you're gonna buy something, you're supposed to beware, when you're buying, you're supposed to do your work, you know, your job to make sure that the tool or whatever you're buying is the right thing. Also, too, there are uh, companies that have been sued for frauds. Um, I still remember when I was a little kid, we ate the cereal called Berry Kicks. And all of a sudden, the cereal Berry Kicks came under fire because there was not a single berry or anything in it, it had the name Berry Kicks. And the only thing it had was food coloring that made the cereal look pink or blue or whatever. I'm still personally confused when you see blue raspberry. Like I'm just going, what is going on there? But um, we have these things in front of us. You're looking at this. It feels like you're getting sold something that it's not even close to being the real thing. Um, we even live in a world now where there's a place in Florida that has been deemed the happiest place on earth. I mean that. I mean that's a high standard. To reach out of every place there is on earth, when you go into a place where you can buy overcharged and way too expensive food shaped in the shape of a mouse, that is where you can find true happiness, right? I don't know about you, but most of the people in my family, rodents is not high on the list of a place where they'd like to go hang out. But at the happiest place on the earth, that's where it is. Now, saying that all to get to this point, you live in america all right oh just to wake you up you do live in america all right? and to let you know this is a fact that there's a version of christianity that has been deemed american christianity and this and i would call it this a version of christianity that does not make is even close to christianity because what Paul, peter is going to tell us here is going to be a totally different way of living than what from if you follow the mainstream teachers that call themselves Christians in America, you're going to find out that what they're saying and what Peter says is totally different. But they're both coined under the phrase Christianity. And we'll get to that. And so then we have to figure out which is the real one. Because the American part of Christianity, and here's the way you will be given this. There are popular books that start off by telling you that God has a wonderful plan for your life, and they will define then what this wonderful plan is. And so in this plan that he has, wealth is going to equal blessing from God. So if you are wealthy, that means God is blessing you. For some reason the stock market crashes, I guess God is not blessing you. And so we've attached money with spiritual blessing. The Bible never attaches those things in that way. We also will hear phrases like this, God wants you to be happy here on earth. The number one thing God wants you to be is happy. You may also hear phrases like this, that Jesus died on the cross, and here's why he died, to make your life on earth happy. So the whole atonement, everything else there was all about your personal happiness. And then, if you listen to uh, the average American type of Christianity, you will come to the conclusion that true persecution, true suffering is missing out on the American dream. And so if you have the American dream here, and if you miss out on it, then all of a sudden you are truly not getting the blessing that supposedly God has promised you, the American dream, and now all of a sudden you're being persecuted. To give you an example, the fact that your coffee that was given to you was not the temperature that you wanted it is not a hashtag persecution mentality. But we we all talk like that, but let's be honest. When all of a sudden, when I talk about this concept of suffering... I'm not talking about the fact that one of you may have gotten a flat tire on your way to church today. But because we live in America, sometimes we can buy the lie that all of a sudden my flat tire, now that's suffering for the Lord on the way to church when I got a flat tire. And we can make biblical suffering completely not what it is. And we can Americanize even this concept here. So with the tension of that going on right now, I want to look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to take some time. I'm going to break down the whole passage, and then we're going to put it back all together and work through the sermon. So let's start off in verse 20, chapter 2, 1 Peter 2:20. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, and have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. All right, so let's break this down here real quick. So verse 20, when it talks about there's what credit is it, if you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure, but when you are doing good and you suffer, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And now verse 21, for to this you have been called. And so if you're an underliner, I'd encourage you to underline this called. This is what you've been called to do. And what's the call? Is to suffer unjustly. That's what verse 20 tells us. For to this you've been called to suffer unjustly. And then 21 continues, because... So now gives you the reason for this calling. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example. So what we're going to see here is two different things. That there's a calling that is on believers. And the reason for that calling is because of two things. Christ suffered for you, and he left you an example. So what we see here in that verse 21 is we're going to see two different things. Christ suffering for you was his substitutionary atonement. And so that if, you, if you're an underliner, I'd encourage you to underline Christ suffered for you. And then above that, if you can write in your Bible there, put verses 24 and 25. Because verses 24 and 25 explain that the substitutionary atonement. And then, leaving you an example... Verses 22 and 23 are talking about the example. So what we're going to see in this passage here is that Christ suffered for you on the cross, and he's leaving you an example. And then Peter is going to use two different verses to explain what does example look like and what does this atoning sacrifice look like. But the way we're going to do it, so we're in a part one and a part two. All right, so part one uh, is going to be the atoning part, even though those verses come 24 and 25, but Peter brings it up first. And then skips so we're going to today talk about these two things but one in particular that Christ suffered for you and that Christ left you an example now here's the thing these two sides of the coin here are very 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 important because just like in anything uh, especially if you drive the country roads around here there's a ditch on either side of the road that neither you don't want to fall in either way and you can fall off the ditch rather quickly if you fall off into the ditch that all you emphasize is the substitutionary atonement, that Christ paid for your sin, there's nothing that needs to be done. You can fall into spiritual laziness where you just sit back and go, uh, there's, I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to sit in my easy chair and wait for Jesus to return. Or if you fall onto what we see in very liberal Christianity is the example only, which according to the liberal Christianity, the way that you now live for Jesus is you feed the poor, and the sick and everything else you're dealing with, never talking about their sin and need of repentance. And so all we're doing is just having a lot of people that have a lot of cloth and clothing and a lot of um, food on their way to a crisis eternity. Instead, we need to focus on both sides of these things, that the atoning work is an example, and the example that Jesus gave us is only possible because of the atoning work. And both of those need to be there. And so what I'd like to do right now is talk about Christ our example, but looking at verses, more of verses 24 and 25. But before we go any further, let's look at verse 21 to that phrase, to this you have been called. So point number one is the call to suffer. Remember, this call to suffer literally flows from verse 18 all the way down through. And we talked about it last week, that literally saying it's a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. Meaning that when you do wrong and... There's hard times in your life. Well, there's no, as the Peter says, there's nothing great in that. It's but when you are doing things properly, the way God has called you, and you have suffering, that is a gracious thing. But notice what Peter says. Not to this, you may, it may happen. There's actually a calling into this. There's a charge. As one commentator says, this is not your fate if you're a Christian. This is actually your calling. This is something you are called into. And why is it your calling? Why is this? If you're a follower of Christ, why are you called to suffer? Well, you were called to suffer because literally it was Jesus' calling. Think about this on earth. Jesus came down from heaven, and it was not just his fate. He was called by God to come down and to suffer. And we'll read other passages that show that. That he was literally called into this world to suffer. And he did not suffer because he was down in heaven. In Palestine at that time, as if the Jewish world was just so horrible that anybody living in there was just suffering. No, he was called into this. as a call by God the Father to go and redeem, and this call was a call to suffer. And if we are to be called followers of God, we are called to live just like he lived. And we'll get to what does it mean to suffer. What does this call to suffer look like? But there's a hymn that I'm going to kind of work our way through the sermon, this hymn is called Man of Sorrows. And it starts off, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would be called a man of sorrows? It goes, because for the Son of God who came, he was a man of sorrows, he came. What did he come to do? Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a seed. Notice this, though. Verse 20 tells us that it's a gracious thing in the sight of God to endure suffering unjustly. It's a beautiful thing in God's sight. It's a gracious thing. And to this gracious and beautiful thing you have been called. Now, it is hard for us to wrap our brains around this. Let's be honest. It is hard to sit there and say, well, I have literally been called to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, Peter is going to tell us in all the other passages, remember how many times Peter had said, Listen, you're going to do what is right, and people are going to malign you. And when they malign you or make fun of you and mock, it, mock you, understand that this is what they did to Christ, expected to do it to you. And remember, over and over again, the mantra has been, and Peter is trying to remind us that it is a rare thing to not have suffering. We should expect suffering. When there's suffering is not happening, you should go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Not... Vice versa, but we live in the American culture and the American culture so pumps into us that everything is supposed to be going wonderful. There's not supposed to be any problems. There's not supposed to be any issues in life. And everything is just supposed to be just glorious and grand that when all of a sudden something comes, what immediately do, what do we need to question? Is God really in control when God never promised that everything was going to go wonderful? And so what happens is we have these dichotomies and these these issues that come up, and so we start questioning God's goodness when we realize that what he is giving us right now is good. But we like to define goodness. We like to define beautiful. We like to define all of these things because we have so bought the lie that we are to have no pain whatsoever in this earth, yet God's word clearly tells us. It talks about this world being a veil of tears. It talks about this world being a... Constant Sorrow, this this stupid song, A Man of Constant Sorrow, is stuck in my head right now. But as we're going through this, literally, that's the concept that what we have been called to. But when we start to embrace it, all of a sudden, we start to see the world differently. Now, we are not the only ones who struggle with this. Peter struggled with this as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a little journey through the life of Peter. So turn your Bibles to Matthew. Point number two is the journey of suffering for Peter. Because when Peter writes this, Remember, we have the privilege of seeing Peter's life with God while he was a disciple. And in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see Peter having the concept of suffering. And in Matthew 16, and uh, we can start, I'm going to basically summarize uh, verses 13 to 20 and then start in verse 21. But remember in uh, Matthew 16 here. Uh, Jesus gathers his disciples and disciples are sitting there and Jesus says, so uh, who do people say that I am? And they're listing all sorts of people, right? And then Jesus turns the table and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and says, you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus says to him, there's no way you would have figured that out on your own. The Holy Spirit literally caused you to open your eyes to see that. But now Peter's still struggling with this. Because remember, Peter's living in a day and age and this is, that had been taught all the way through, but not properly taught, that the Messiah was going to come and just make everything great. Going to heal all of their problems, throw over the Roman Empire and everything else like that. And the Messiah was just going to come. And literally, there was a, I'll summarize it as a weird twisted health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that the Messiah was going to give. And all of a sudden, Jesus now... In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now, that does not sound like God has a wonderful plan for your life, rich wealth and prosperity, because Jesus is going to say, just letting you guys know, here's what's going to happen. So Peter is going to go, this is not going to help build my little kingdom here. And he takes Jesus aside. And here's what Peter says. I, this is something that's almost to the point of Matthew going, think about this for a moment. Peter literally just said, you are God of the universe. And with, in a couple of verses, Peter, the created being, is going to say to the uncreated one, hey, let me, let me tell you something. You're not, you don't, you're not getting this plan here. Because I have my plan. And here's what he says to Jesus. He takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Meaning, you're not looking at this even closely in the right way. Like, here are the things of God, and like there are the things of man, Peter. Because what was Peter thinking? there is no suffering with this Messiah here you are not going to die we're we're on our way to bigger and better things you're feeding people you're healing people let's just ride this wave into into popularity and just destroy the Roman Empire and what does Jesus say no I'm going to die totally different I'm going to suffer totally different than what Peter's thinking and notice this though the rejection of the suffering that Jesus was going to remember Jesus is being called to suffer and we know that the suffering was brutal because Jesus even in the night he was betrayed remember he's praying in John 17 if there be any other way but then no not my way but yours be done submitting to the father knowing that the suffering was going to be hard Jesus literally turns and said Peter if you think you can get out of suffering that litter is the theology of Satan get behind me Satan the fact that you think that there will not be any suffering in this world literally I would even say is a satanic thought process that you think that only good is going to happen to you. This is what Peter is literally being rebuked of. You don't know what you're talking about if you think there is no suffering. Moving on, Matthew 26 here. Matthew continues this and as Peter is wrestling with this, Matthew 26, verse 30. Matthew 26, 30. And when they sang a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to him, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said, Listen, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter's going I'm sticking with you no matter what all right and what do we see that's going to happen in verse 26 69 through 75 we're not going to read that all but what does Peter do he denies him and one of this denials meaning like hey Peter's going to go we're going to win this thing right in verse uh, 30 through 36 and we know that Peter's going I'm gonna stick with you to the bitter end because remember when the guards come what does Peter do he grabs a sword and he gets ready to attack Thinking, all right Lord we're not you know you're not suffering I'm not gonna let you fall into the hands of these people and then all of a sudden when Jesus does fall into the hands of the people now Peter is going I don't want anything to do with that that whole Jesus thing that whole thing over there I'm not even going to be acknowledged that I was in his presence because Peter is struggling with this whole concept of the uh, being identified with Christ and what does that mean ridicule suffering rejection and Peter's going, no, 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 I, that's, I don't know if I signed up for this. And he continually keeps moving away from what God is literally saying it's going to be. Now, it's very clear that Peter had a life-altering moment there when Jesus was with him on the beach, and Jesus said to him, feed my sheep three different times. Because in Acts chapter 4, you're starting to see, flip over to Acts chapter 4, you're starting to see Peter start to change. Because in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John, by the same people that killed Jesus, Peter and John are before them in Acts chapter four nineteen, Peter and John heal a blind man, remember, and they're on trial for it. And in verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then they further threatened them and let them go, because of the people that were passing by had given praise to God. What we see here is Peter here is going, listen, you can tell me to be quiet, but I can't. Another, the other passage too, there, for sake of time, we will get it. He says, There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus, the one that I would not even want to be associated with. Now I am, and by the time we get to now, 1 Peter, what does he say about this suffering? We have been called to this. This is our calling. In a way, it, in another way of putting it, one of the commentators wrote, it is if the call goes out that we need men of arms to come and to go to battle. This is the call that goes out to the Christian. The call to suffer, the call to take up your cross and to suffer is the call to the Christian individual. It's interesting. Church history tells us that at Peter's death, uh, he was crucified upside down. Now, we don't know. It's not as how accurate that is, but history tells us he was crucified upside down because he did not want to... He viewed it as a disgrace to be crucified the same way Christ did, according to history, that he said, no, I don't, I don't even get that privilege. You know, kill me the other way. I mean, what takes a man from that way of thinking here all the way to the point of when they, he's suffering, going, I... I I know I've been called to this, but I'm not even close to my Savior because of who he is. Kill me this way. It's an interesting thing because Peter's starting to grasp this call. But remember, he is writing to a group of people that are about ready to be persecuted for the cause of Christ. A group of people that are being told by society, you need to get with it, you need to give in to this way of thinking and they would stand in the gap and say no this is not what we're doing here's the example that we've been called to follow so let's look at this here point number three we see this example for this you have been called because christ also suffered for you christ suffered for you so how did christ suffer for us we see there in the text it tells us in verse 24, literally starts off, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. This idea that He bore our sins, remember this, this is, it goes without saying, but it also needs to be said, that Jesus did not have any sin. He did not bear His sin along with yours, He bare our sin on the cross. And Jesus bore and the guilt and condemnation on the cross. He bore your guilt and condemnation on the cross if you're a follower of His. He himself bore our sin on his body on the tree. Jesus' atoning death actually accomplished our salvation. That's what the text tells us. He bore our sin. It actually did save. It was an actual redemption. It was not a theoretical redemption. It was an actual redemption that Christ accomplished what he was sent to do. Literally, I will seek and save. That's what was lost. Going on, it said that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus, the purpose of Jesus bearing our sins. He bore our sins that, and you can see that that we might, and here's the point, be dead to sin. Being dead to sin is only possible because of Christ's accomplishment on the cross. This sin that so easily entangles us is only forgivable because of Christ bearing our sins. And not only are we dead to sin, but he made us alive to righteousness. This alive to righteousness means then we are able then to follow his example. You have been dead to sin, alive to righteousness. And so Peter is going to say, so guess what? Live like it. Live in the life that God has given you. Turn real quick to 1 Peter 3.18. And you'll see this hit home even more. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once that he might take those who are dead and make them alive. This is literally why we use the term born again, because you were once dead in your sins and now you've been made alive. And then the text goes on as well that Peter writes a line that all of the Jewish readers of this would immediately think of a text. By his wounds we have been healed. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. By that line there alone... Peter is cl- proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah 53, because in Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming and talking about what the Messiah would be like. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, literally says, we'll start in verse 4. Actually, let's go to, well, start at 3, because it helps. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that is what we've been called to follow. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have smitten him, stricken, smitten by men and afflicted, by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. This is where Peter's getting it. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and each have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now let's look at the text in front of us. By his wounds we have been healed, Isaiah 53. And then what does he talk about in verse 25? Now we get sheep. What do you think is on Peter's mind when he's writing this, Isaiah 53? And so what we see here is by his wounds we are healed. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is this healing? Well, I believe Peter tells us this in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Sheep stray. That's what sheep do. They're good at not very many things other than doing whatever they want to do, and usually whatever they want to do is pretty much the dumbest thing that they could do. And it's interesting that God compares the church to a bunch of sheep. I will let the chips fall where they may on that one, uh, how well you live up to that. But don't we all? I mean, we literally, because we live our lives, you know the old phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you? We do that all the time. How many times have we told God, God, let me tell you how you should be doing this. You know, this is, this is the way it should go. But we don't really understand what we've been called to. So what is this healing? This healing that his wounds have brought is the ability for the sheep to return to their master because the sheep would not return to their master on their own. His death gave the ability for the sheep to return. This is what the text is saying. For you were like a sheep going astray. It didn't say the sheep had figured out how to go back. It literally says because his wounds there was healing. What was the healing? The ability for the sheep to be gathered in. And so we have to ask ourselves at the end of the day, how does this whole thing work? So Christ bearing our sins on the cross was the healing that brought us back to God. His wounds had paid our ransom. Back to our song again. One of the phrases says, guilty, vile, and helpless we. This is literally what we were. Guilty. Not only were you guilty, but you were vile. Vile's about as vile as you can get, as they say. Not only that, we were helpless. So we look at the guilty, the vilest, and the helpless, but then the answer is, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is what Peter is talking about. Here's what Peter is saying to this calling, and we'll spend even more time on it, you will not understand the call to suffer until you understand the atonement. And we're only halfway through, because he's literally saying, when you understand the atoning work of Christ, that Christ died for your sins, that he rose again on the third day to bring you life, and then not only that, he gave you an example of how to live, until you understand both of those, when suffering comes into your life, the, the Christian will struggle with embracing it and saying, all right, Lord, what do I need to learn from this? But here's the part. We live in, in a world where the moment anything happens that is negative in our lives, we run to so many other things other than running to the Savior. And I, I, I'm putting myself right in the middle of that. If immediately right now... Let's say I got the. This is why you never go to the doctor because you don't find out you have cancer unless you go to the doctor, right? But if you went to the doctor and went, you know, here's the problem. They call you back and they say you have cancer. Sadly, usually the thing that we don't do is get on our knees and pray. Usually we say, well, what are the possibilities of surviving? And as long as they're good, then we go, all right, good. We got this. Did Did you pray? Or is it only when you get the terminal thing that now we pray and we ask God for help? Because we do this. This is our our knee-jerk reaction of going, wait a minute, if there's no other earthly answer to it, as if earthly answers are all we have, and we still run to that in so many things. So many days we start off our day not realizing that by God's sovereign hand we would not have another breath. And we go God we've got this and we start off our day not even acknowledging our Heavenly Father's guidance not even acknowledging the fact that you literally are driving within feet of somebody else going 60 70 miles an hour the other way at you and you're just gonna go yeah I got this because my car never blows a tire or there's never anything freak accident that happens no we've got this and we just go through our merry life and all of a sudden we're shaken at the core That, wait a minute, we live in a sinful world where there's death and disease all around us. Only then do we run to the Savior, and we wonder why our spiritual muscles are not very strong to withhold this suffering because we've never exercised them on a daily basis. Because, which we'll explore even in more, you've been called to something, you're for Father of Christ. The word Christian literally means little Christ. So if you are a little Christ, that means you will follow and be Very similar to the life of Christ. Because we've been called to follow Christ. And this following Christ, one day, will end up with eternal peace before his throne. But James reminds us of this, though. Here's what we all like to say. Today or tomorrow, I'll do this or I'll do that. What does James tell us? You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. If it's the Lord's will, you will do this or you will do that. Do you not know that your life is but a vapor? So if our life here is but a vapor, what does that also mean about the trials and tribulations that come into our life? They're but a vapor. Remember what Paul told us last week? These mere momentary struggles are nothing compared to the weight of glory. Let for us. When we see the bigger picture, when we see what God has yet in store for those who love Him, these momentary things, in a way, are almost a blessing to help us long for that even more. The closest I can even get to that, because we live in a world, let's be honest, by God's grace and his providence, we live in a world where there's not a lot of suffering. I'm not encouraging you, this is not the other side to go out and try to find suffering. All right, as if you're going to earn a badge of courage or something like that. You know. That's not what we've been called to, but what we've been called to is to follow him, and when suffering comes, it should not unravel us because we're expecting it. But here's the other thing, and I want to end with this. You know in the summertime when you look off to the, usually the west here, and you can see a storm brewing, you can even smell the rain in the wind that you know a storm is coming, and you can hear in the distance the lightning, but it hasn't gotten to you yet, or you can even see, one of my favorite things, is you can see the rain coming, and you can literally see it hitting the field, but it hasn't even gotten to you yet, and there's that wall there. Um, I really do believe we are this close in the church world In the American world from getting intense persecution around us. And if we don't now, going back to my rain example, cover what needs to be covered and get inside and get ready for the attacks that are going to come and to know what we need to know and to be sure what we need to be sure of and to know the truth, because in the chaos that comes when you're all running inside and everything, people are tripping over everybody, if you're like our family, and all of a sudden now all the wet just got inside, and the mess that is there. But when you know it's coming and you're not prepared for it, that's unexcusable. And so how do we weather the storm that's coming? We must be. We must be people of the word. We must know it forwards and back. We must know it because the lies and the deceptions are great. And we must be able to stand with each other and encouraging one another. Because trials will come, hard times will come, and when they do, this is what the body of Christ is to be called to do, to gather together, to encourage one another, to exhort one another until the Lord returns. And so we should not go into this with, I would call it blinders on our eyes, thinking that, oh, don't worry, everything is okay. The world and its way of thinking is contrary to the things of God. And it's only a matter of time until they realize that God's word speaks directly against the direction that our world is going. And we have learned anything over these last two or three years that anything that speaks against the narrative needs to be destroyed at all costs. And they just haven't figured out how to do it yet. So we must know and we must be willing to do what it takes to stand for the truth. And we do it together. We're about ready to take communion and remind ourselves of the atoning work of Christ. This is not a a time that we take lightly. And so I encourage you, even now, and before uh, Rob comes up to lead us, even now, beginning to prepare your hearts. So let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you. Thank you for the call that is on each one of us. The call to suffer the call to stand for the truth. May we not back down. May we be bold because your word gives us the truth. May we stand for the truth. May we stand for the right. And dearly, Father, as we remind, as this communion table reminds us, as it's a symbol of your blood and your body that was broken and shed for us, dearly, Father, may we just stand in awe of the fact that you have come to redeem and to bear the sins of many. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen. You could stand. We have one more song to sing before communion.